This episode is brought to you by Marantz Model 40N, ISA's Smart Amplifier of the Year. The most musical sound simplified. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. Joining me this week is one Peter Como. Welcome, Peter. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Peter, I think many of my audience members might not know who you are because you work sort of in the in the shadows, in the background of, I guess we call them IAG, who are Chinese conglomerate who own a bunch of British hi-fi brands. But today we're here to talk about mission loudspeakers, and you've done some fairly extensive work with them of late. Am I right? Yes. Um, <clears throat> not just of late, actually. It, it goes back to 1999 um, when I joined them, uh, which was as a result, actually, of working as a consultant for NXT before that. Mm. So, yeah, quite a long history with Mission. Okay. So do you remember the first speaker you designed for Mission? Uh, yeah, the first the first one. I mean, I was thrown into the deep end when I got there because um, they the, the the first thing. I mean, I joined in the December of 1999, and mm. the first thing we had was a big sales team meeting with a lot of distributors from overseas, all sat around a huge table, and you know they're all looking at me as the next. What is this guy going can can do for us mm. <laughs> uh, and the, the we had a lot of complaints about a budget uh, range of speakers we had at the time um, particularly that the floor standers weren't producing any bass huh. so i had a quick look um sort of online as to what the model was because i really got no idea what they were talking about and i thought i spotted something so i said you know, I think I can sort that out if we just add another base unit. But I'd have to try it out. So, you know, mm. and they all sort of landed on this way. Wow, yeah, this would be great. And I thought, oh, what have I let myself in for? Anyway, we did it. And that became the 773E, uh-huh. which went on to become a bestseller. So, you know, that was a good start. That was a great start, right. Um, but the the one that I put my heart and soul into uh, which was uh, an update. They had a previous model called the 750, which was a very, I mean, tiny by today's standards. Because mm. this is this is a time when speakers were getting smaller and thinner and smaller and thinner. Mm. Um, so this was a tiny stand mount, the 750, uh, and the, it, they wanted uh, a new version of it. So I worked, I would guess, on that for something like six months. Wow, okay. Um, which is... Uh, just just doing the the audio and mechanical side of an updating an existing model, being given six months is a bit of a liberty. Mm. And eventually, the sales manager sort of stopped me on my way home one day and said, "Look, <laughs> I don't know whether it's ready, but I want to hear it." <laughs> so right. I took it around to his home, and he went, "I want this. This is going to go into production now. I don't care what you say." So, oh, okay. <laughs> and it is a problem with speaker designs is that you can go on and on and on improving little increments here little bits there um and 
the 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 problem for any speaker designer is knowing when to stop. And the trouble is, we never do know when to stop. But mm. eventually, the sales team have set a deadline for when the project is going to be finished. So that's so, that's what you go for. So without a deadline, you could just work forever and ever on on a speaker, well, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, every speaker designer will, will tell you this: that there's always something which they feel in their bones they can improve on. Hmm. Is that? I mean. I guess we could get into this early, but is that from a measurement perspective or from a listening perspective or both? Uh, listening perspective. Um, measurements can only tell you whether you're doing things basically right or wrong. Mm. I mean, if you've got if you've got a pretty horrendous frequency response, then you know you're doing something wrong. Um, if you've got a good frequency response, it doesn't tell you you're doing things right. It just tells you that you've got something that might be worth listening to. Mm. Um, the, for example, and I mean I trot this one out frequently, is the the mission seven seventy. Mm-hmm. Because of COVID, I was given quite by accident about two and a half years to work on that model. Now, I mean, that that is unknown in my experience uh, of, of speaker design. Usually sales are banging on your door after a, after a couple of months. Mm-hmm. But co- because COVID held everything up uh, and I was working from home, um, I had a total of two and a half years to work on that. And I built, physically built, uh, 174 crossovers, all of which measured great, mm. but they all sounded different. So, would you say that the, the the difference, the audible differences, were larger than the measurable differences? Oh yeah, by far. Yeah. Interesting. And did you? I mean, if it's not a silly question, like after say like the eighty fifth crossover, are you not like, oh my goodness, how long is this going to take me? Well, yeah, okay. I mean, we're we're sort of rushing into the seven seventy here, I guess. But uh, sure, seven seventy was a special case. Because mm. I had been turned on to the 770 when I was reviewing for Hi-Fi magazines back in 1977. Right. Uh, and, and I'd been visiting my editor in London, and he'd been used as a guinea pig by the CEO of Mission Farad Azima mm. uh, to test drive some of the prototypes. So like mm-hmm. every couple of days or maybe once a week, Farad would drop round to Paul, that was the editor's flat, uh, and with another pair of prototypes and say, what do you think? Um, he wasn't just doing this with Paul, he was doing this with a couple of other editors as well, uh, with mm. most notably John Atkinson, a stereophile. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I was visiting Paul and I got to hear these prototypes and it, it shook me to the core because... I'd been, I'd been, I'd been in hi-fi retail before that. I'd been managing a hi-fi shop down in Devon. Um, mm. And I'd been, out of that, I'd started reviewing for hi-fi magazines. And I was just in the process, while writing for hi-fi magazines, um, starting my own speaker company with the help of, ah, of a I good see. friend. Um, mm. So I was sort of in the middle of this well, I know what I was selling wasn't good enough, and I know what I was reviewing wasn't good enough, but boy, these are good enough. These are really extraordinary. And I think the reason was that, well, in my recollection anyway, um, the reason that the 770 was different is because Farad was 
Yeah, he was doing some measurements, but he was basing everything that he was doing on listening. And hmm. that's probably that was probably rare back in the 70s. Uh, a lot of people were designing and doing a bit of listening, but not to the extent that he was. He was fine-tuning by listening, mm. um, which I think was pretty unusual. And he was going all out for something which made music sound fun. I mean, I just remember bopping around the room to Fleetwood Mac's Rumours and mm. uh, Dire Straits' Sultans of Swing. And, you know, it, it, was, it was fun. So I, I felt I needed to replicate that. If we were going to do something new, um, and yeah, I'll jump the gun into history, but uh, sometime, you know, uh, what are we talking about now? Probably over three years ago now, mm. uh, the sales team came to me and said, look, what can we do to, um, to really elevate Mission's position in, in the hi-fi hierarchy? And I said, well, I'd love to do a new 770. I know it's a, it's an old model, and you might think that it's a replica, but it is such a standout item for Mission. that, And there, are, there aren't many on the second-hand market now. You know, people who've got them tend to hang on to them. Mm. Um, so they command fairly high prices when they do come on the market. Um, so I'd love to be able to get that speaker out there in the market today because i think people would love it and they they went for it thank goodness so i then kicked off the project and i really wanted to take the originals which i had a pair of mm. uh, and improve on them using today's technology using what we now know about speaker design that we didn't know in the 70s can i, can I jump in here because i, I know that it's um well, I believe, because I wasn't around in the late 70s listening to Hi-Fi because I was only like five or six years old, but um, I believe that the the original Mission 770 had a polypropylene driver, which was unusual for the time. That's what I've been told. Yes, the, there had been polypropylene base units developed by the BBC. Um, that's where the idea originally came from. One of the engineers there had, had built some pro monitors using polypropylene, got very, very good mid-range results. Mm. Um, and that had been released onto the market by a company called Chartwell, which I think Farad got his original base units from Chartwell, but then another company in Scandinavia, CS, also licensed the use of polypropylene. Um, and that was the unit that he went for in the end. Mm. But what was it about polypropylene that was so, I guess, so special at that time? I mean, was it just because it was a new material or because it had certain mid-range properties? I don't know. Well, it it does have certain – it still does have certain mid-range properties. <laughs> um, I, um, I talked to several designers around the world, and they all say that if in, in terms of its mid-range performance, in terms of bringing voices to in, to life, really, um, mm. It has incredible properties. Where it was failing, I think, in both in the, in the original 770 and in um, various other designs that were using it early on, mm. was that it wasn't very good at bass. If you if you feel a, a, a one of the polypropylene cones out of the 70s is actually quite floppy, it's mm. not very stiff. So its pistonic movement at low frequencies wasn't ideal. Let's say. Um, but we can improve on that now. 
So I did read the the press materials for the new 770, and I, and I, I remain baffled by this. I think I may even have expressed my confusion at time of writing it up, is that you've added, and it's this is in the press release, I'll, I'll have to quote it, it's like you've added minerals to this polypropylene mix. Now, what <laughs> what are minerals? Uh, well, you know, either, either ceramic or stone-like substances. I mean, in this case, we've added... We've added some mica. We've added some um, calcium carbonate. I mean, otherwise known as marble. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, ground up to to a fine dust. Mm. Um, that's what gives the polypropylene is a clear material. So, but if you look at the new seven seventy cone, it's milky white, and it's the mineral content that makes it milky white, and that ah. adds stiffness to the to the whole cone. So right. we still get that beautiful mid band from polypropylene, but now we've got the stiffness to give us a good base response. Did you, before you did that, did you think it was a bit of a risk to, I mean, obviously you're going back and you're trying to recreate the original as close as possible, but with new, new techniques. But even then with that sort of this idea of adding minerals to the driver mix, did you still think it was a bit of a risk in, in taking that on and trying to do it and trying to make it work where, because I I don't, forgive me if I'm wrong here, polypropylene is not commonly used now, is it? I don't know. I, I think you'll find it, yeah, I think you'll find it in various drivers. I mean, right. I, I, I agree with you, it's not common, but I think mm. you'll still find it in various designs. Mm. Okay. Uh, it fell out of favor for a bit, I think, I think probably because um, people were, didn't like its base response. But, you know, we, mm. this, this is the advance in technology that we can do all the time. Uh, I'm very often asked, look, really, are modern speakers anything any better than their their more elder counterparts and I have to say yes i mean even if it's only in the small things they are better because we know we have better ways of measuring now we have better ways of understanding what cones and and domes and other drivers do well now um mm. you know we, we we can we have computers which can analyze things better we have we have better methods of formulating things like plastics it's it's we're just better at doing it, and all these add up to what I would class as a, a superior sound quality, a more realistic sound quality. Right. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, a bit like when JBL, I'm sorry to talk about competitor here, but when JBL reissued the L100 as the classic version, I think they had a bit of a challenge being able to get across the message that this wasn't just a, a, a sort of a bit-for-bit rebuild of the original, and it was basically a brand-new speaker but made to look and sound a little bit like the original. Is is that what you did with the 770? Uh, well, I would say, having listened to the L100, I'd say that we've gone further than that. Right. My, my method of doing it was to say, what is so good about the original? And that took a lot of research, you know, mm. to to... Un, to, to reverse engineer somebody else's design is really, really tough because mm. you, you don't know what was going through their head. You don't know what the target was that they were aiming for. You know what you're hearing, but you're trying to say, what is it about what I'm hearing um, that relates to the way the speaker was constructed, how the drive units were constructed, and, and how the crossover was designed, particularly the crossover, because the crossover is the heart of the speaker. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people look at the outside of the speaker and all they see is you know drive units and a wooden box. 
Mm. But what goes on inside is unbelievably important, and the crossover really is the heart of a speaker. So playing devil's advocate again for a moment, couldn't you just reverse engineer it from using measurements? No, no, because like I said before, what does a frequency response measurement tell you? Not much. It, mm. it doesn't tell you how the speaker sounds. Right. Okay. So you had to do it by ear. You had to reverse engineer it by ear. Well, almost. I mean, first of all, uh, we measured absolutely everything we could about the speaker. Mm. Uh, and in, in order to find out what the fundamental concepts of design were. And then it was a matter of what I call mapping the crossover slopes. Mm. And I could not map the crossover slopes to any filter, to any crossover filter design that I knew. So right. I actually had to go pouring into textbooks until I finally found the crossover, the crossover slopes that were used in the original. And when I reused those crossover slopes, that's when some of the magic starts started to happen. So was that at crossover number one? Where, where, how no, far did you get? Was, that was about crossover 65 from Calgary. Okay, okay <laughs> so you got about a third of the way before yeah. you could find the actual sort of crossover slopes that you, you thought uh, you needed. Absolutely. And I, I, let me tell you, I was tearing my hair out for those first 65 iterations because I, I thought, yeah, I'm making quite a nice speaker, but it's not the 770. Uh, I, I was after that 770 magic. Right. That, that mid-band which came to life, that, that essence of the speaker which made all types of music, no matter what you played, just fun mm. to listen to. The, the sort of performance that means that you just want to go on listening to more and more. Mm. So you changed the tweeter as well? Yes. Um, the original tweeter was nothing to write home about. It, mm. it was off the shelf from CS in its day. It was, fa it was a fairly nice plastic dome treble unit. Mm. But it, it wouldn't pass muster today. I don't think anybody would like it, or mm. I certainly wouldn't like to use it in a design anyway. Uh, so that wasn't part of the magic. Uh, that it, it was the base mid that, that was was the real essence of mm. of the of the original seven seventy design. So that meant that I just then had to come up with a really really top notch treble unit that could give me a very good match in terms of character to the base mid-range. Mm. And what did you land on? So I worked with the designer of that very closely. He's a, he's a friend of mine who knows a lot about treble units, knows far more than I do anyway. Uh, and um, <laughs> we, we, I, I took one of his traditional designs because that's always the best thing to do when you're trying to get mm -hmm. something off the ground. You know, don't reinvent the wheel, but take something which you think is pretty good, and then just elevate it to a new level. Uh, so we worked on that for six to nine months, I think. Holy um, smokes! Just on the just on the tweeter. Wow. Just okay. On the one driver. Yeah. Just right. on the one okay. driver to get that to where we wanted. Uh, we were also working on the base mid at the same time. I mean, that took that took a year. Um, no, I do apologise. That took eighteen months before we got that to where we wanted it to be. Right. It sounds like a lot of frustration in this process, especially if you're doing it iteratively by ear in the main. No, I'm not saying all of it, but that sounds pretty well, tricky. All, uh, all, <laughs> all speaker design, all speaker design is frustrating when you're starting because you, you're. And I mean, to see this in do-it-yourself speaker designs as well. You know, people who who 
get some drive units off the shelf, put them in a box, um, cobble together a crossover and expect it to work. And they all come back with, why doesn't it sound any good? <laughs> I, mm. Well, because frequency responses and everything. Um, you've got to, you've got to go through the frustration. And I, I mean, if, when I was designing with a friend, my first pair of speakers back in 1977, which we got on the market late in 1978. So we spent 18 months just developing one pair of speakers, our first pair of speakers. Hmm. I learned a lot about, A, about the frustration that you go through. And of course, when you're working with a, with a friend, it's not so bad because hmm. when you're down, he can be up and he can say, oh, come on, look, we've got some good things here. Let's go for it. Um, but when you're working on your own, as I, as I do a lot now, I've, I've got recourse to you know, 22 engineers to work with, but really mm. they're just waiting for me to tell them what to do. Uh, so I'm working on my own when it comes to to, to going through this frustration. But I, I, with with 45 years experience in hi-fi, I think I I can uh, buoy myself up now. And on, on the bad days, I say, yeah, tomorrow I'll come in and see what it sounds like then, and not worry about it. Well, I guess you reap the benefits of experience. The more you do it, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, you, 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 A, you learn what you have to do in order to make things better. And B, you you learn not to get very, very disappointed when things aren't going the way you like. Right. So that, to come back to that tweeter, the treble unit. So I think now it's a, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is it a doped silk dome? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I know I've seen, okay, so... Th- Oh, I got to go back to the beginning, really, with my sort of exposure to your speaker. Is that I'm friends with Terry Ellis in London, and he ah, okay. he did a a great interview with you when you launched this speaker. And I, I did watch it back then. And one thing I remember was you were talking about how the the tweeter has a was well, reinvent reinvented reported written no, a reinvented reinvented uh, into its own rear chamber. So yes. if you, if you like, it's got its own little box behind it. So. I see this popping up every now and again nowadays. Now, is that a relatively new innovation, or was was this uh, the reinvented chamber around in the late seventies or no? I don't remember it being around in the in the seventies. Uh, the it was it wasn't until the uh, past the millennium that that I first came across it. I haven't looked into the history of it. I must admit, I mean, somebody mm-hmm. can somebody can crop up online and in the comments and tell us that, oh yes, this was around in the sense. Yeah, I have no idea, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was. It, it's been around since the two thousands. Yeah. Okay, so it's not really new, but it's kind of new relative to the seven seventies sort of history. Absolutely new for the seven seventy history. Yes, and I mean every it, it, you're designing a rear chamber for a, a drive unit. The same way as you would design a, a box for a base unit, it's mm. it, it, there are all sorts of different ways of doing it. So, could you, ex- I mean, to explain it to somebody who doesn't know why you want to put a tweeter and give it its own sort of rear chamber? Is I mean, is that to control the back wave? Or what, what's the what's the thinking there? Um, a little bit of it controls the back wave, but mainly it's to lower the resonant frequency. So. Just to uh, just to sort of explain this, every if if you imagine 
adding a weight to a spring and then letting it go. It bounces up and down. Mm-hmm. It'll bounce up and down at one frequency, depending on what we call the compliance, the stretchiness of the spring, mm-hmm. and the mass of the weight that you've added. Mm-hmm. Right? So we call that the resonant frequency. Now, in a treble unit with no rear chamber, the resonant frequency is normally in the one to two kilohertz area. Okay. Now, if you're crossing over at three kilohertz, let's say you're using, for argument's sake, a 12 dB proctive crossover. If you're crossing over at three kilohertz, at one and a half kilohertz, you're only 12, D, 12 decibels down on the main music. Right. So any resonance that occurs at one and a half kilohertz, you're going to hear. It's going to be, you know, blindingly obvious. Gotcha. So if you want to get, if you want to avoid hearing that resonance, then the ideal way is to lower it. And that's what go, that's what the rear chamber does. It increases the volume of air behind the treble unit so that the, the relationship between the mass of the dome and the springiness um, of its suspension and the air behind is lowered so that the resonant frequency is lowered. So, for instance, in that particular case, we took a treble unit with 1.3 kilohertz resonance, lowered it down to, eight, I think it's 850. Ah, I see. So you move it sort of out of the audible band. Exactly. Right. And so you're still crossing over at three kilohertz with the new one, the new yeah. speaker? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, we've talked about the mid-bass driver, the tweeter. We've talked a little bit about the crossover. We might come back to it. I want to talk now about the cabinet because for, I guess that the limited amount I know about speakers in the 70s is that there wasn't a lot of, well, there wasn't as much attention paid to bracing as there is now or the structural integrity of the cabinet. Am I right about that? Yes, most people just built a rectangular box, um, stuffed it with some foam or what was then was called BAF fiber. It's a synth- synthetic fiber, mm-hmm. uh, and let the box get on with it. Part of the reason for that is because we were dealing with um, closed boxes. Certainly in the sixties, fifties, and sixties, most of the designs were completely closed boxes. Mm. Um, so that you actually, in order to get what what people in those days called a good tone, uh, which meant some having some warmth in the sound, um, mm. you'd actually let the box resonate a bit in the bass. And then okay. well, the BBC did a lot of work on uh, enclosure resonances. Um, it was Doug Shorter who started it off. Mm. And he he and then later um, researchers found that if you used a very thin-walled plywood box, you by adding bitumen pads to that, you could add mass. Very much coming back to our spring and weight thing, you lowered the resonant frequency, in this case by adding mass and having mm-hmm. a very thin wall, which increased the compliance, increased the springiness of the walls of the box. So what that did is it drove the resonance down below 200 hertz, which meant that it was moving away from the frequencies of male vocals. And this is what the BBC were interested in. Remember that they were mainly interested in building studio monitors which reproduced voice accurately. 
Mm-hmm. They weren't too concerned about you know, bass, guitar, bass, drum, and bass synthesizer hadn't even reared its ugly head by then. Um, so, so anything that drove resonance down for them was a good thing. And that's that's something that Farad Azima picked up for the Mission 770. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was again, it wasn't the only loudspeaker using it, but he put it to good use in the 770. I measured the main panel resonance in the 770 to be 175 hertz. Mm-hmm. Now that gave a little bit of warmth, a little bit of warmth to the bottom end of the of the 770. So. In the in the new 770 that you've designed, what did you change? Well, we can't get away with that today. If you have a resonance at 175 hertz, you're bang in the area where the upper harmonics of bass guitar, bass synthesizer, uh, you know, even drums, even percussion, um, begin to have a strong effect. And on, if you if you hear those resonances, then it will color the sound of all those instruments. Right. And again, dare I say it, but back in the 60s and 70s, we weren't too bothered by that. Because <laughs> in, the, in the vinyl era, you did not have strong bass. Uh, bass was, in the mastering process for records, bass was slightly diluted. Mm. Not a huge amount, but slightly diluted compared to what we have now with digital sources and streaming mm. because digital sources and streaming allow you the same the same dynamic range at 10 hertz as as you get at, at one kilohertz mm. so uh there's no restraint now i mean you listen to billy eilish you know the 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 base the base content of billy eilish's music is phenomenal mm. um you have to do justice to that now. You have to be able to hear what's going on. Um, you could, you can't do that on older speakers. It, it sounds a bit, it sounds a bit cloudy. It sounds a bit mushy. Mm. It, 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 it's if you're going to do a speaker now, it's got to be done right. So for the for the new 770, we we worked on um, obviously some established principles like bracing, but we don't. Actually, in today's world, we don't like overbracing because when you overbrace a cabinet, all you're doing is forcing the main panels into smaller areas which resonate at higher frequencies, which means they're more uh. audible. So we don't want to do that. Hmm. So we only use bracing now to what I would call control and damp panel resonances. But the main aspect is damping. So I like to do uh, two things. One is I like to use differing materials because if we just use MDF, MDF has a particular, it's a very coherent material. It's really just sawdust bound together with resin. So it's the Mm. same all the way through. And that means that it has a consistent quality of resonance. And you can pick it out. It's it's very mid-band prominent uh, in its resonant character. and, And it has what I would call a slightly cracky nature to it. Mm. Uh, and I don't don't like the sound of that personally. So I like to combine it with chipboard. Uh, chipboard has is is wood particles of completely different sizes bound together by resin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they, it tends to have very small particles close to the edge and bigger particles inside. And that means it's 
um, its resonant modes, its breakup modes, are scattered over a wide frequency range. So its character isn't so audible. So when you combine those two together, we get the strength of MDF, but we also get the nice sound of chipboard. And then for 770, we went one further. We started using a special damping glue to bond the two materials together. And that was the key. Uh, we've got a, a, a very, very natural sounding resonance from the 770 cabinet now um, at very low levels. But what is there uh, is is not obtrusive on the music at all. Right. So, okay. So we've got <laughs> new mid-bass driver, including new, well, new driver design, new tweeter with rear vented chamber, brand new crossover. I've seen the crossover compared to the original in Terry Ellis's video and the, the, the new one looks... Well, I won't say it looks more complicated, but it's bigger, isn't it? It's bigger and heavier. Is that right? It is. It's it's much bigger and heavier. Um, again, the reason for that is because we've got we've got more power to contend with. Um, you know, the, we now have digital sources which are capable. Uh, I mean, you won't you won't find music that covers this, but you know, they're capable of 100 dB dynamic range. I mean, music is generally limited to about 40 dB dynamic range. But, but even so, um, the, the dynamics, as I pointed out, because of the, the bass content, um, the dynamics now have to be covered very well. And the bass content is such that you need crossover and drivers which can handle a lot of power and which don't compress when you put that power through them. Uh, that's tough to do. But but you know we use we use you know, bigger coils. Um, we use two hundred and fifty volt polypropylene capacitors. Um, all these things help. Um, they all help the the way things sound as well as measuring better. The other thing was that I did I I wanted to follow like I said the original filter design of the seven seventy, but now we can add other little bits to that filter not nothing major it's still mm. the same um, the same flat phase response slope that, that farad used but we can now do it more accurately so there are elements that you will see on the circuit board which just smooth out the the acoustic response of, of the drive units and the crossover so that we get it closer to perfection if you like and that's all they're there for. If you if you study the crossover um, as a basic electrical circuit, you'll see that it follows pretty much what was done in the original 770. A question that's just kind of popped into my mind is that did you get any sort of either pushback or raised eyebrows when you suggested making a loudspeaker or designing a loudspeaker that had the almost the exact same look as a speaker from the 70s? No, it was wanted when when I when you know when I showed the sales team the picture of the original seven seventy, and they went, "Well, that that's unique. That doesn't look like anything we've got now." Because a few of the sales team actually remember the original, mm. which is you know it's frightening that we're all those of us who do <laughs> remember the original are still around. Right. But there you are. Um, uh, so no, they're all for it. it. Wasn't a problem there. I expected there to be a problem, but there wasn't. Because, I mean, I, I get it, and I look at those and go, wow, but that's because maybe because I wasn't there the first time, or I was just a little bit too young. But I just, I do wonder, because I know that 
hi-fi companies, especially big ones, are very conservative in, you know, in their risk-taking behavior, understandably so. And I know that, obviously, we've mentioned them before, JBL had done it. But uh, I mean, had... I mean, had the Wharfdales been done at that point? I'm, maybe they had, or one of them had been done? Yeah, well, I, I, I have to say, I, I, I got a feeling that I kicked off this whole retro thing um, it, way back in, in the... You know, oh, anyway, we did the 80th anniversary. That was what it was, 80th anniversary of Wharfdale. Right, yes, yes, yes. When uh, the sales team, we had this, this big meeting out in China, and the sales team said, we're coming up to the 80th anniversary. What can we do? Uh, and the various things passed around the table. One was something you know, brand new and exciting. Mm. And I said, well, hang on. <laughs> You're coming at this a bit late. Had you come to me with this two years ago, we could have done something brand new, exciting. But I've, you've only given me six months <laughs> to get this together. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, I, I can't do anything brand new and exciting. So, oh, well, what are we going to do then? Uh, we're going to do a, a reiteration of something we've done before. And then I suddenly thought, yes, but let's not do a re- reiteration of something we've just done. Let's do a reiteration of something that's way back into Wharfdale's history that put Wharfdale on the map. Oh, I and see. I was in, when I was managing a shop, we sold a lot of Wharfdale Dentons and Wharfdale Lintons. And mm. I said, why don't we do a modern recreation of the Wharfdale Denton? Uh, and so that's what we did. Uh, so the Denton, the 80th anniversary Denton was the first, and then the Linton came after that. And it was the success of the Linton. I mean, one thing that did raise some eyebrows was when I did the Linton prototypes and showed them to the sales team. Mm. And they went, a lot of them went, we can't sell that. It's too big. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And it's since since gone on to be a Wharfdale bestseller. So, yeah. Um, Doing doing the mission, you know, was a no-brainer after that, really. I see. Okay, so you'd already kind of done the hard work yeah. in sort of convincing people that this is a, a viable proposition. Absolutely right. And, and, I, and I, like I say, I think it was the it was the Denton eighty and the Linton which kicked off other companies into into doing their retro stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's becoming. A, I don't want to say trend because that makes it sound overly reliant on fashion. But I, I guess I have this sort of personal theory, Peter, that just as something is about to disappear completely, it becomes it reaches a new audience. You know, well, so I think it, it, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, but I think it goes further than that. Mm. Uh, if I can sum it up with one experience, when we introduced these speakers, um, we had. One guy came into our demonstration room at the Bristol show in the UK. Mm. And he he sat down for an hour and he listened and he went away and he came back and he sat down for another hour and listened. And then he turned around and he said, I've been searching for something better than my own speakers, which I've had for 15 years, and I've never found it until now. And I think that sums it up that a lot of us grew up with what I would call large loudspeakers, mm-hmm. you know, my my first 
the first loudspeakers that, that I ever um, built that were any good, I mean, I built, I built quite a number of speakers, but the first ones I built that were any good were Wharfdale Dovedales. Mm. And they, they were from a kit. So I built my own cabinets and worked out the cabinet volume and all the rest of it. Um, but I remember those fondly. Mm-hmm. And you just don't get that from, you just don't get that performance from small speakers. So a lot of this is because people remember what big speakers used to sound like. And now we can give them the chance to hear that performance all over again. But do you think it's, but yeah, but do you think it's because you're giving people a larger speaker with all the attendant acoustic benefits, but in a more visually palatable package because it speaks to, I don't want to say a golden age of hi-fi because that's a horrible cliche, and I, you know, but it's just, I guess people are drawn to, well, some people are drawn to sort of old-fashioned looking things, right? And I, I have no doubt that the success of the, so the Denton, the Linton, and your, your new missions are a large can, can largely be attributed not just the sound but the looks. So if you can make something visually appealing, you can convince people that a larger speaker is a goer in their life, whereas a maybe a larger modern-looking speaker might never got, get across the threshold of their you know their, their doorway. People buy with their eyes as well as their ears. Absolutely, they do, yes. (laughs) People have to live with these things in their home. And the reason I picked out the Wharfdale Denton and Linton originally was because that particular design, um, which was done for for Wharfdale, put Wharfdale on the map. The reason the the Wharfdale and Linton originally sold so well was because they were great-looking pieces of furniture. Mm. They still are great-looking pieces of furniture. The reason the Mission 770 caught the the world by storm was not just because it sounded great, but because it looked so striking. Mm-hmm. It still looks striking today. It's an incredibly modern-looking design. Well, I think it looks more striking today because it's it it's not surrounded by speakers of a similar visual ilk because it might have been in the late seventies. No, I don't. I, even in the late seventies, there wasn't anything like it. Really? So, yeah. what what was it about it about the looks of the seven seventy in the seventies that set well, it, it apart? It was that polypropylene cone, and it mm. was the white front baffle with missioned in, emblazoned okay. on it in in their fantastic logo. Gotcha. Okay. Now, what, can we talk about pricing? Because I know this is a sensitive area for many people. I'm not saying it would be for you, but one, you know, a few comments I've seen online because people love to remember the past as being very cheap, and they like to think of the the modern day hi-fi world as extremely outrageously expensive. I mean, the 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 price of the new one is, I guess, is it fair to say it's more than the old one? Peter? I, I mean, so in it, terms- it is slight. It is slightly more. Let let me let me just. Please do some. Let me just do some calculations for people out there who've got fond memories I would of love you buying to. the original seven seventy for five or six hundred pounds. Right, right. Five five hundred pounds. I've done the calculations. Five hundred pounds in today's money. This is taking into account the recent surge in inflation we've had. Right, just to put yep. it into yep. into yep. accurate perspective, is three thousand pounds now. Okay, wow, okay. That's using that's using Bank of England rates 
updated mm. to take into account the inflation over the past two years. So that's three thousand, and and you know we're charging. Well, in the UK, we're charging four thousand pounds. I don't know what it is in dollars or euros, or whatever. Mm. But for that four thousand pounds, you get a far better engineered speaker. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the one thing we didn't cover was all the work that we've done on the power handling of the base unit, the fact that we've got uh, a copper cap over the um, the magnet the, the magnet pole piece, which gives us um, low eddy currents, very good control of magnetic behavior, much lower distortion. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a, a, a much bigger magnet on the on the back of the base unit. Which you know, maintains the high sensitivity, but also establishes control at low frequencies. Um, plus, you've got the multi-layered um, cabinet with its damping glue, uh, the improved treble treble unit, the improved crossover, and you get a pair of stands specifically mm -hmm. designed for the speakers. Right? How can that not be good value for money? Yeah, I just I think people tend to sort of misremember the past. Is why I brought this up. Yeah, is that they they kind of they they forget they forget about inflation, and you know the the real the real cost of things rather than the sort of the, the sort of absolute numerical cost because people love to remember the seventies as, as if it were yesterday, and they remember oh. the pricing as if it were yesterday. But obviously, I mean, I think I mean don't prices double every. 10 or so years i mean effectively because of inflation yeah i mean i guess it depends upon the economy i mean right now it's it's pretty bad inflation but um yeah i just it's, it's just an issue that i wanted to cover because i i uh, thought it was yeah. going to be a bigger issue than it was and when, when ah. we launched we did have you know i monitored the comments on facebook Mm. We did have a few people cropping up and saying, "Oh, it's a ripoff! I bought my five hundred pounds." And I, you know, I just went went on there and said, "Look, do you realise what five hundred pounds would buy you now?" Mm. Um, it's it's a strange world that we live in that people do not up uprate uh, what they spent in the past to what things really cost now. Right. Okay. But I guess if people want a uh, a seven seventy like speaker but for less money you now have an alternative for them don't you peter you have the 700 is that right yes um we did that specifically for that reason that right that, you know i'm i i like to think that whatever we do at iag is is affordable it's within the it was it's not outrageous it's within mm. the region of somebody's pockets and obviously, we do a huge range of products with with mission right from the LX, um, you know, up, upwards. Uh, mm -hmm. The LX is incredibly affordable for for the sound quality that you get. I think it's unbelievable value for money. Um, but, but we do like to to keep things within everybody's reach, and mm -hmm. the, it's obvious that even at, at, at four thousand pounds, the seven seventy is is outside some people's reach. Yes. So I wanted to get that fun performance back into something more affordable. Um, mm. Mission originally did it. They also understood this back in back in 1979-80 um, mm -hmm. when they introduced the 700. They did that again for the for the same reason. They wanted to offer people a, a 770 uh, that was was more affordable, and that's what we've done now. 
Now, uh, the odd thing about the Mission 700 is that the original, with its polypropylene driver, wasn't around for very long. Um, I don't ah. think economically uh, the original was sustainable. I don't think they could make a profit with it. So they, they pretty quickly they switched to a paper cone. And that's the 700 that a lot of people remember. But before that, there was, if you like, um, a baby brother, sister, whatever, to the 770 called the 700 with a polypropylene co. Mm -hmm. And that's the one we remodeled um, because that's the one I liked, quite honestly. So, yes, the 700 has the same enclosure style combination materials and damping, the same method of bracing, very, very similar in the base mid-range unit, same treble unit. Um, the one thing we haven't talked about is the porting because... Okay, yes, yes, the, please, the, yeah. The modern port is a very carefully profiled porting system, which gives vanishingly low distortion uh, compared to most ported systems. Mm. Um, so we kept that as well. It's just in a smaller package. And did it take you as long? To... Luckily, no. Yeah. Having having learned what I learned about the 770, no, it didn't take as long. But you know, I'm still I still spent a long time listening to all types of music and fine-tuning everything until it performed the way you wanted. Um, doesn't sound the same as 770. It's mm. it's a slightly more uplifted at the top end. It's got a, got a I, I suppose you could say, a slightly brighter response. Mm -hmm. I, I hesitate to use these words because people talk about bass, mid-range, and treble all the time, and I hate that. I prefer to talk about your, your and my reaction to music. Um, it's it's still a fun speaker. It, it can still play any type of music. That's the main thing. I think I agree with you on the bass, middle, bass, mid, and treble sort of three-way dissection of the frequency response of anything, really, and how people talk about that. But I th unfortunately, I think it's become so entrenched with, say, people in the sort of audio community or just generally people who have an interest in hi-fi gear, that that's what they want to know about. That's that, that's the language that they understand. Because I never used to talk about these things, and I have done more so lately, because I know that it makes my findings more relatable to an audience, even though I guess in some ways it's not how I would like to talk about things. But I have to sort of meet my audience halfway sometimes, not always, but, you know, I have to make some concessions to, I think, what they want. Um, I think sometimes when you're – because I've reviewed for magazines for long enough, for goodness sake. Mm. But I think sometimes I used to find myself being drawn into this bass, mid-range, and treble when I wasn't actually enjoying what I was listening to. There's mm. a lot of equipment which I reviewed, and I think there's a lot of equipment around now which is the same. But that's just my opinion. You don't have to go along with it. Where you are sitting there stunned by the sonic impact of what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. And it's only after you've been listening for, in my case, five minutes. For most people, it might be five hours, that you start to realize that you're not enjoying the music. You're just enjoying the sound. You're just enjoying the bass, mid-range, and treble. Now, I don't like designing that way. Um, mm. 
I don't design for sonic impact. I design for something where you can put it in your home, you can put your favorite music on and your not so favorite music on and start exploring your CD record, streaming, whatever collection, even tape collection all over again because you're enjoying it so much. Not because you're hearing things you haven't heard before. You're just, it's just fun. You're just enjoying listening to music. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is, is that you're designing in a way that sort of transcends the, 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 the sort of three-way dissection of the frequency response. It, it goes further than that. Well, again, if I can use, well, I'll, I'll use two experiences if you don't mind. Please do. One, one is that when we introduced the 770, it was at the Munich show. Uh, the Munich shows, I love the Munich show because you've got couples. You don't, mm. you don't just get this endless stream of, of guys coming in. You've got couples yes. coming in and families coming in. Mm-hmm. I love that because, mm-hmm. you know, come, it, uh, yeah, um, everybody, everybody loves music. <laughs> um, yes. So we, we had couples and we had families coming in and they were sitting down and he, I was just looking at them, looking at their reaction because I always, always love to see people's reaction. Are they going to sit down and immediately get up and walk out, which means they didn't like it, or are they going to sit down and stay? And what I was noticing with the 770, more than I have any other speaker really, is that couples would sit down, the female of the couple would start within a fairly short space of time bopping around you know she'd be moving her head moving her hands tapping her feet moving her body to the music Mm. the guys would all be leaning forward listening intently to try and hear what it was (laughs) that they were listening to Mm -hmm. and then if i was lucky after a period of time they'd sort of sit back and relax and start to enjoy it as much as their female companions were and that for Mm. me taught me a lot think about the way that we as as men analyze hi-fi equipment we do like to sort of do this hi-fi enthusiast thing of what am i listening to what's the bass like what's the mid-range like what's the treble like and for for the men who came in and sat down and listened to the 770s you could see them looking puzzled because they couldn't analyze the sound that way Mm. and they were thinking what is it that is so special about these? <laughs> and the other, the other aspect uh, is that I've, I've got uh, a university student working with me at the moment as an assistant. It's his mm-hmm. year out from university as part of his degree course. And he's a musician. And whenever we, he's got a very keen ear. And whenever we sit down and listen, uh, and I would be tempted to say, well, I don't think the mid-range is quite right. We need to improve these, fre- you know, this frequency range. I think has got a problem. He'll say, "Well, I thought that the s- nylon strings on the guitar weren't as pronounced as they should be, or I thought the saxophone didn't quite have enough rasp, or I thought the sibilance was a bit too strong, or I thought the cymbals were a bit too peaky." didn't mm. shimmer as they should. So he would always describe things in musical terms. Um, and that I think you can get that across in a review, can't you? You can say, well, I was listening to this piece of music and you know the horn sounded great, but the, the, the double bass didn't. I mean, you know, one of the 
the best reader emails I ever received was about seven years ago. So I, I was about two or three years into doing this. And he said, in a very nice way, basically, look, you can talk about the sound of the, a product all day long, John, but what you need to do is tell us why it matters. So if if you do notice something in the bass, tell us why it matters to that r record or that song. Or if you notice something in the treble, you know, tell us how it manifests itself in this recording or you know that recording. So like make it can join the dots essentially. And I never forgot that email. And I still haven't because it still in, informs what I'm trying to do in communicating sound. It's not easy, but it, you know, try and make it relevant to music as your um as your university student intern is 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 attempting what well, is successfully doing by the sounds of it. So Yeah, I th I, th I think I think that's exactly what we should do. You know, when when uh, you know when I'm demonstrating speakers um, to to people, I'm, I'm very interested in what they don't like as much as what they like. Mm. And very often they'll, you know, if I'm playing prototypes to people, very often they'll point me in the direction of what they don't like by telling me about the music. They don't mm. tell me about the sound. They always tell me about the music. That's great. Yeah, That's that does make more hear. sense. Yeah. Um, one final question which I think is an important issue, actually, is that am I right in saying that you're making these loudspeakers in the UK now? Yes, we're making 770 totally in the UK. Um, we felt that was important, um, partly because I can't get back to China because of mm -hmm. COVID restrictions. Mm. Um, they won't allow me into the country. Not me personally. <laughs> Just people, you know, yes. Westerners <laughs> yes. in general. Uh -huh. uh, uh, so that meant that we, you know, we need to set up complete lab facilities for in, in the UK for me to work here, and then that led on to well, let's let's start some manufacturing here as well. So we got our own cabinet shop, hmm. um, and you know, one thing led to another. Um, we 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 manufacture the whole speaker, so that <clears throat> that's great. Because you know, I've got it under my control. I can pop up to the production line and make sure everything's going smoothly. And mm. they can come to me when things aren't going smoothly and say, "What do we do?" So that's great. And the seven hundred is that made in the UK or somewhere else? No. In order to keep price down, I mean, you know, bear in mind it's a seven seventy in in just about all but name. Mm. Um, the only way we could get the price down was to make that in China. Yeah, I'm sorry to say. That that is still the case. That I've done the maths, and to make a product in the UK compared to making it in China, it's between three and five times more expensive. Really, that much? Wow! I yeah. didn't expect it to be well, that. Well, you know, if you look at what you've got in your pocket, John, which I guess is either a, an Android phone or a, or an iPhone, um, particularly if it's an iPhone, yeah, particularly yes. if it's an iPhone, you're holding the equivalent of 32 Cray supercomputers, which was the fastest computer when I was growing up in the, <laughs> mm. in, in the days when computing you know, was really getting going. It's, mm. In your pocket, you have the equivalent of 32 Cray supercomputers for cost you what? You know, £1,000, £1,300 yep. Yep. today. I mean, with, with a display that, that is... You can edit photos on it so accurate, so clear, and you can mm -hmm. talk to people across the world. You know, we can do what we're doing now on mobile phones.
Yep. And you could only do you could only do that because it's made in China. I'm sorry, but if you were to buy that made in the West, anywhere in the West, it's going to cost you at least three, probably five thousand pounds. People ought to wow. you know, remember that when they complain about stuff being made in China. They ought to realize that the 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 the, pe- the pound in their pocket, the dollar in their pocket, the euro in their pocket only goes only enables them to buy this incredible modern technology because manufacturing in China is so cheap. But also companies like Apple, Samsung, whoever, they have the advantages of economies of scale because they're making hundreds of thousands of these units, right? And you won't be doing that even with the the 700. I'm sure you'd like to, but you're not going to be selling 100,000 pairs, I wouldn't think, in a year or something like that. So No, we won't do 100,000 pairs, but I think Mm. think we'll do tens of thousands, which which I find absolutely brilliant because it means that I'm getting what you know my my baby into tens of thousands of homes and mm. that, that's great that's far better than making a hundred thousand dollar speaker and selling three a year you know where's the, where's the fun in that how many people are you influencing sure right. you're making a lot of money but you know you're not you're not actually making your mark on the world you know when I look at, at something like mission lx2 sales you know where where we're doing or I don't know I don't know what the numbers are but but I think we've we've probably done about thirty thousand. You know, wow, okay. Thirty thousand homes which are enjoying something which I've enjoyed designing, and which I hope are giving people a hell of a lot of pleasure. That's great. Yeah, I really like your attitude on that, Peter. I think it's very very cool. So, with with that in mind, what what are you are you allowed to say what you're working on next? Or, uh, or is it top really? secret. Okay. No, we, <laughs> it's 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 going to be fun, whatever it is. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, we look forward to it. I'm sure whatever it is. Um, okay. Well, Peter Como, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure and it's great to speak to you. 